Committee will come to order. Uh, today we will hold the nomination hearing for three very important positions. First, we have Mr. Robert uh, Destro to be Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. Second, we have Mr. Uh, Keith Crock to be Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment, as well as the following positions, United States Alternate Governor of the European Bank for Reconstruction Development, United States Alternative uh, Alternate Governor of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and United States Alternate Governor for, of the uh, Inter-American Development Bank. Our third nominee is uh, General David Stilwell to be Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. We also have uh, some very distinguished guests uh, with us who wish to introduce uh, two of our nominees, so we're going to allow them to proceed to, with those uh, introductions. So I'm going to po postpone my opening statement until we have the introductions so they can be excused to pursue other ideas. And so with that, I'd like to uh, uh, introduce Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana and ask you to make your introduction, please, Senator. Chairman Rich, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, thank you for allowing me to speak. And I appreciate the ability or the opportunity to introduce President Trump's nominee to be the Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, Mr. Robert Destro. Mr. Destro is currently a professor of law at the Catholic University of America here in D.C., where he also serves as director of the university's Institute for Policy Research and Catholic Studies. He is also the founding director of the university's interdisciplinary program in law and religion and is a distinguished fellow in the Religious Freedom Center of the Museum Institute. He is immensely qualified. His body of work represents the principles and experience necessary to accomplish the mission and promote democracy, labor, and human rights abroad. Robert is a graduate of University of Miami, Ohio, and University of California Berkeley Law School. And he has dedicated his career to protect the rights and well-beings of peoples of all faiths, ethnicities, and nationalities. In 2007, Robert served as the primary administer, uh, administrator for the Interfaith Cooperation Initiative in Israel and Palestine, a USAID-funded effort to bring Christian, Jewish, and Muslim leaders together to work on practical issues important to each community. His ability to work with all parties towards a common goal is obviously an important quality for his nominated position. In 2011, he co-founded the Iraqi Kurdistan Religious Freedom and Cultural Mapping Project, which produced the only pre-ISIS survey of the Christian communities in the Kurdistan region. With him today are his children, Gina and Mark, brother-in-law, William, and also his wife, Brenda. Uh, Brenda, in her own right, is uh, an accomplished and committed public servant. Um, she was pivotal in, in my office working with Chris Murphy and his office to uh, both write and pass the Bipartisan Mental Health Reform Act of 2016, which was signed into law by President Obama. Uh, it was through her that I met Robert, and with his expertise, he then aided my office in developing and passing, by unanimous consent, a bipartisan resolution in 2016 expressly naming the atrocities perpetrated by the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant against religious and ethnic minorities in Iraq and Syria as war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. It was through working with them that I witnessed a clear passion for human rights and freedom for all people. 
He continues to be actively involved with the Christian, Muslim, Yazidi, and other religious communities throughout Iraq in an effort to document the ISIS genocide. To make measured advancements in democracy anywhere in the globe, you need a willingness to understand the relationships between the political culture and social dynamics of groups in the region. Reviewing his past work, it is clear Robert Destro understands what it takes to be successful in this position. I look forward to the committee and the Senate favorably considering his nomination. Thank you, Chairman Risch. Thank you very much, Senator Cassidy. Uh, we uh, appreciate you taking time to come here and give us those uh, remarks from a personal standpoint. Mr. Destro, welcome to you. Uh, now we have a couple of our members uh, from the committee that uh, are going to introduce one of our, our guests today. We'll start with the uh, uh, Senator Portman, uh, the Honorable Senator Portman from the great state of Ohio. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The great state of Ohio happens to have two nominees before you today. Mr. Destro is also a native of Ohio, uh, but I'm here to take the opportunity to introduce Keith Kroc to be the Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment. Uh, Keith is a native Ohioan, as I said, born in Lakewood, Ohio, raised in Rocky River, that's near Cleveland. Um, his parents, Elda and John Kroc, he says, were the most important mentors in his life. He says his dad's the best leader that he ever knew. And for those who know Keith, and I've had the opportunity to meet him uh, prior to his stepping up to this post, uh, he takes after his parents, and I think that's the ultimate compliment. You'll see from his biography, he's highly qualified for this position. He's a natural leader. He's got a long list of business accomplishments and successes. I think he'll be the first to tell you that he would not have been able to do any of it without support of his wife, Meta, who's with him today. But he's also got uh, a few kids, uh, Stephen, Carter, seven-year-old twins, JD, Emma. Um, and I see the seven-year-old twins are with you today. Is that correct? Go, go JD and Emma. Um, I know you're all very proud of your dad. And uh, again, we're uh, proud of him for stepping up to take on this public service responsibility. The job uh, he's been nominated for is really vital, not just to the State Department, but to our country right now as Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and Environment. He's going to have a really important responsibility, uh, senior economic official at the State Department. He'll be Secretary Pompeo's principal advisor on a lot of issues, international economic development, energy, agriculture, science, technology. Uh, Chairman Rich talked about some of the responsibilities that post earlier. And he couldn't be taking the post at a more important time for our country. We're, we're strong in our economy right now. We're, we're blessed by that. But uh, frankly, it's a, it's a dangerous and volatile world out there. And specifically, we face a lot of challenges. China continues to use unfair trade practices to undermine our economy, particularly in the area of intellectual property. But beyond that, and I know you'll be involved in some of those issues, uh, Russia's trying to leverage the transit of natural gas through Europe with Nord Stream 2, which has enormous potential foreign policy implications. Um, Europe is wrestling with Brexit and the possibilities there. We saw some news this morning about uh, another change in Parliament taking over that issue, and this has got uh, ripple effects all over the EU and, and beyond. And also, how do we capitalize on the opportunities of emerging markets throughout the world that, that want and need U.S. leadership? I, I think that's something that uh, we sometimes forget is there's so many developing countries that are looking to us to provide that leadership and perhaps a, a model um, of how free markets can work. So there's no doubt in my mind that Keith's up to this task. He has the academic background with degrees from both Purdue and Harvard to go along with an impressive business resume, starting out at 10 years with General Motors. His current job is CEO and Chairman of the Board of DocuSign. I'm proud to introduce uh, my fellow Ohioan today, and I know he'll serve the Secretary and his nation with distinction. I urge my fellow Senators to vote in favor of his nomination here in the committee and, and on the floor. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Portman. Senator Young. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee. It's an honor for me to join Senator Portman in introducing Keith Kroc today. Uh, you've heard him, his impressive bio from Senator Portman, but I want to use my time to talk a bit about uh, the immense value he's added to my state of Indiana and the difference he's made in the lives of countless individuals. His connection to Indiana is through Purdue University. He graduated from Purdue in 1979 and served on the Board of Trustees from 2007 to 2013. I asked Purdue President Mitch Daniels to describe Mr. Kroc's relationship to the university and... Um, one word stood out, beloved. He continued, he is beloved for his commitment to students and for helping advance the university's mission in learning, discovery, and engagement. And we will be proud to see his influence on an even larger scale. Sounds really heartfelt, uh, and having spent some time uh, with you, Keith, um, I echo the sentiments. Mr. Kroc's professional achievements are impressive and they're well documented. You've heard about some of them. He's a visionary with global experience that makes him eminently qualified to serve the president as Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment. What he's chosen to do with his success demonstrates his character and devotion to causes that will leave this planet better for future generations. As Salman Khan noted, Mr. Kroc has empowered people to accomplish more than they had ever imagined, resulting in a profound impact on GDP per capita, international trade, and the sustainability of our planet. Take DocuSign as an example. Not only has it been a successful company, it was named one of Glassdoor's best places to work. And DocuSign's disruptive technology has saved more than 20 billion pieces of paper and 608,000 barrels of oil. Additionally, DocuSign Impact Foundation, which Mr. Kroc now chairs, is a force multiplier for the charitable causes selected by DocuSign employees. Beyond DocuSign, Mr. Kroc is an advisor for City Year, founder of Children's Autistic Network, and board member for Opportunity International, which issues microloans worldwide. So, Clearly, he has a heart for service, and if that weren't enough, he and his, him, his family foundation supports education, science, the arts, healthcare, and people in need. So um, there's nothing more humbling than reading through this list of, of achievements for me, and I'm grateful that uh, Mr. Kroc has accepted this call to serve his country. He's going to be a true asset to the State Department, to this president, and to our nation. I look forward to supporting his nomination before the committee and on the Senate floor. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, uh, both Senator Young and Senator Portman. Uh, welcome to our guests. We're going to, I'm going to make a, some very brief introductory remarks and then uh, turn it over to the ranking member, Senator Menendez, to make some introductory remarks, and then we'll turn to you for your, uh, for your opening statements, and we'll, uh, we'll have some questions. So with that, um, welcome to you and your, and your families, obviously, and the families share in these uh, just as much, uh, uh, sometimes more so than, uh, than the nominees. I've experienced that myself. But we welcome all of you, and um, uh, at a time where democracy, first of all, talking about the appointment uh, of uh, Mr. Destro uh, for uh, Secretary, Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, uh, at a time where democracy and human rights are challenged across the globe, it is important for this position to be filled. In particular, pervasive threats against religious freedom threaten our core values. The United States will and must continue 
to uh, defend this fundamental human right. Following the United States withdrawal from the UN Human Rights Council last June, I look forward to hearing from you on how the United States plans to continue to lead on human rights issues around the world. Uh, next, uh, uh, Mr. Kroc, for uh, the Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and Environment. Uh, this uh, important position oversees a number of uh, bureaus at the State Department, and I look forward to hearing how you plan to promote, promote the important role that these bureaus play uh, in advancing American economic interests overseas. Uh, finally, uh, I'm pleased to welcome uh, uh, General David Stilwell, Nominated to be Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, General Stilwell brings a wealth of expertise in the Indo-Pacific region acquired during his more than two decades of service in the United States Air Force. He served in Japan, South Korea, and China, as well as on the Joint Staff and, on, uh, and at U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. He is currently the Director of the uh, China Strategic Focus Group at U.S. Indo-Pac uh, Command. And um, on a personal note, uh, General, thank you for hosting me at the command. Uh, that was uh, very instructive, and, uh, and I appreciate that. It's unfortunate all my colleagues don't have the opportunity to do that, but uh, uh, that was uh, a very enlightening uh, briefing. Uh, the Indo-Pacific region is vital to American prosperity and security, and the United States has a deep interest in supporting a free and open region. I look forward to hearing how you will advance U.S. interests in this region, especially through strengthening and expanding our alliances and partnerships. Our enduring, our enduring alliances with Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand are a source of, of American strength. Strengthening these alliances and expanding other partnerships are key to promoting peace, security, economic development, and freedom across the region. The challenge of China is global. Uh, the challenge uh, of China is global but most acute in the Indo-Pacific. The Trump administration is already engaged in rebalancing bilateral relationships and pushing back on China's often uh, coercive and intimidating actions in the region. However, more, much more, remains to be done. We face the continued threat of North Korea's nuclear and missile programs. I remain optimistic that we can get a deal, but it is going to take time, and we will need to keep up the pressure. The Indo-Pacific and China in particular are a top priority for this committee, as we've already discussed in this committee. We look forward to, partic uh, to particularly close coordination with you as you work uh, to advance American interests in this important region. Along these lines, I'd like to take note of the, assurance, uh, of the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, an effort led by Senators Gardner and Markey, signed into law by the President last December. This act aligns well with the priorities articulated by the administration and should be implemented. Uh, thanks to you all for being here uh, with us today. Thanks to your families for being here. And uh, Senator Menendez, I'll turn the floor to you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome to the nominees and to your families as well, and thank you for your willingness to serve. Mr. Chairman, however, before I turn to these nominees, I need to correct the record concerning statements reportedly made by President Trump yesterday afternoon in which he claimed Democrats were holding up nominations in the Senate. Let me be clear. When the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has received qualified nominations, I have worked with efficiency and diligence to vet and advance these nominations. I've devoted my time and staff resources to ensure this because of our strong belief that the State Department, USAID, and other foreign affairs agencies must be properly vetted. 
and properly staffed. In the last Congress, the committee reported 169 nominations. So I reject any assertion that we have not done our part to ensure that the State Department is appropriately staffed. As the chairman knows, the, the committee, with my full support, has been extremely diligent in moving forward on General Abizad's nomination to be the U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia. He appeared on the very first committee nominations hearing of the 116th Congress, and I look forward to voting in favor of his nomination as soon as the chairman puts him to a vote for the committee uh, in a nomination process and to a speeding confirmation. I've also proposed to the chairman moving forward with approximately 20 more nominees based on reaching an agreement regarding other committee business, and I look forward to a response. But I am concerned that President Trump has an inaccurate view of the nomination situation in the Senate, and particularly on the Foreign Relations Committee. We cannot confirm diplomats that we do not have. All too often, the committee has received nominations late or not at all. It took 23 months before the administration bothered to nominate General Abazid. It took even longer, over two years, before the Trump administration nominated a candidate to be U.S. Ambassador to Turkey. We are now 26 months into the Trump administration, and we still lack ambassadorial nominees to critical countries like Egypt, Pakistan, and our close ally, Jordan. And when we do receive nominations, the substandard vetting at state means I have to devote significant time and resources to ensure that we are not moving nominees who have no business representing the United States of America around the world. Now, I have been a gentleman about this. I've not gone through these nominees' backgrounds, but in fact, uh, I intend to go to the Senate floor and talk about some of the problems that these nominees have. They have problems with Me Too issues. They have legal issues. They have ethical issues. The list is uh, pretty significant for a series of these nominees. And so uh, while we have tried to do this internally, to get to a better place uh, if the administration wants to make charges that are exactly not true, then we will go to the Senate floor and have a full vetting about what these nominees are all about. Uh, but to get diplomats in place, they need to be nominated in a timely fashion and vetted properly. That's the real holdup here uh, above all. Now let me turn to the nominees here today. General Stilwell, thank you for your lifetime of service. Uh, to our nation. It's good to see a nominee for a critical position of Assistant Secretary for East Asia and the Pacific. Uh, and um, it's taken a long time, nearly two years, but I'm glad to see that we will hopefully soon fill this important post. I know you have a deep knowledge and understanding of China, but as you know, the region is much more than just China. I happen to be one who holds the view that to get China right, we have to first get the region right, starting with our allies and partners. So I'm also interested in hearing your views on the rest of the region and how the United States should be positioning itself. I'm sure you followed the press about the President's tweet reversing U.S. sanctions on North Korea, followed by what appears to be an effort to uh, deny that the President had done what I thought he plainly did. I don't know what to say about uh, such a process, other than to know that dealing with Korea is deadly serious business. Uh, and I would expect you to share your views with us this morning on exactly what you believe both happened here and what we will be doing as we move forward against one of the critical national security challenges of the United States. Mr. Destrel, welcome. As you know, the Bureau of Democracy, Rights, and Labor leads many of the State Department's most significant efforts to advance American values, including the rule of law, 
democracy, individual rights, religious freedom, and labor rights. So you, should you be confer, uh, confirmed as Assistant Secretary for DRL, you will lead a bureau that works to promote some of our most basic values. Last year, I sent a bipartisan letter to the President urging him to nominate a properly qualified candidate for this position. We advocated for a qualified nominee, but most importantly, one committed to upholding the basic rights of all people, including those targeted for their work, such as journalists, labor activists, and human rights defenders. So, sir, I have to say I have deep reservations about your willingness to carry out those duties. First, your statements and positions on a wide range of LGBT issues are extremely concerning. In the past, you have opposed the Equality Act, which would ban discrimination against LGBT Americans. You've criticized non-discrimination protections that allow transgender people uh, to use public accommodations. Perhaps most troubling, you've suggested that faith could be used as a pretext for discriminatory conduct against LGBT people. Given your history on these issues, it's hard for me to imagine how you could credibly advocate for the rights and equal treatment of LGBT individuals. When it comes to women's rights, I'm not convinced that you would be a leader or the staunch defender of women's rights across the globe. In my view, reproductive rights are human rights, and the reality is that too many countries around the world, it's still entirely acceptable for women and girls to be denied autonomy over their bodies and control of their lives. Many others share these concerns. On March 22nd, a coalition of 46 human rights and civil society organizations wrote a joint letter opposing your nomination. And I ask, Mr. Chairman, that this uh, coalition letter be included in the hearing record. It will be. Least, uh, excuse me, last but not least, uh, Mr. Cracked, uh, as President Trump's nominee to be the Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment, uh, I hope you're, hit, you're ready to hit the ground running. I think you, you will be. Um, here again, we're dealing with a position that has been vacant for more than two years. Uh, I, um, I will be looking forward uh, to hearing in our questioning some of your views on some of the issues in your portfolio, particularly uh, one that I think uh, has a global challenge uh, and that ultimately, ultimately also has a economic growth uh, and environmental challenges, which is the issues of climate change. And I look forward to hearing your views on that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. To respond just briefly to your remarks uh, about the President expressing his frustration on nominees, um, I, I share the President's frustration, uh, and uh, we, uh, as you know, you and I have had lengthy discussions on these, and uh, we want to move these as rapidly as possible. We've got uh, about 60 pending in the committee. Um, we had 13 on the business committee, which has been taken down, as you know. But uh, the uh, criticism that he hasn't filled some of these, uh, again, I think everybody would like to see them filled, but where we've got a backlog of 60, it's uh, hard to criticize him for not doing his job when uh, we've got uh, 60 in front of us uh, before we get to those. So in any event, uh, I look forward to working in a cooperative fashion and seeing if we can't get them there. I appreciate your uh, desire to go to the floor and talk about the uh, flaws you believe in some of these appointments, which is certainly your right as a senator to do, but I think you've got the uh, cart before the donkey. Uh, what we ought to do is get them out on the floor and debate them out on the floor. Uh, get them out of this committee, move them along, and uh, people can vote yes or no as they see fit uh, based upon 
uh, their uh, view of the nominee. The president certainly feels that they're, they're qualified. I understand you have the absolute right and, uh, uh, to uh, think otherwise and debate otherwise, but the, the, what we should do is move the process along, get votes up or down, and let the chips fall where they may, and those that don't make it, uh, he can, uh, the president can back up and, and refill. So I look forward to working in a cooperative fashion with you, to moving these as rapidly as possible. Uh, there's a lot of angst out there, I can tell you, for getting these positions filled. So with that, Mr. Destro, the floor is yours. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, thank you for giving me the opportunity today to appear before you as <laughs> President Trump's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. I'm humbled by the nomination and grateful to the President for the confidence he's placed in me. If confirmed, I will be privileged to serve our great nation as a member of Secretary Mike Pompeo's team and as a member, as the leader of the dedicated public service servants who are together the, Democ the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Please allow me at the beginning to take a moment to introduce my family. With me today are my wife, Dr. Brenda Destro, my daughter, Gina Destro, my son, Mark Destro, and my brother-in-law, William Clunan. I'm grateful that they have taken time from their busy schedules to be with me here today. I'd also like to acknowledge the many family members, friends, colleagues, and students, both present and former, who are watching this hearing online. I'm grateful for your support, too. I'd also like to acknowledge those who came before me, but who are no longer with us. My parents, Anthony and Betty Destro, were first-generation Americans. My dad was a policeman in Akron, Ohio for nearly 40 years, and my mom a homemaker who kept my sisters and me on the straight and narrow. All four of my grandparents were teenage peasants who arrived in this great country from Sicily in 1910. How amazed and proud they would be of our family. Only in America, Senator. I can say with confidence, only in America, because the individual success stories of the members of my wonderful and distinguished extended family would not have been possible had my grandparents not settled in a social and political community that respects the basic equality and dignity of every human being. That respect is written into the text and structure of our founding documents and is reflected in the text of the many human rights conventions to which the United States is a party. Our nation's commitment to respect for human dignity shows up in our strong support for the rights of individuals and associations and the demands of human rights advocates that governments and international organizations live by the command that all persons are entitled to equal protection, and I underscore protection of the laws. Americans support and encourage a myriad of civil society, society associations, both at home and abroad, because we strongly believe that, as human beings, it is our God-given nature to communicate freely and to organize associations to achieve our common goals in matters of faith, education, business, politics, the arts, and the welfare of others. This is why Congress and the President have asked DRL to provide support to individuals and organizations around the globe who aspire to, to enjoy the blessings of liberty, democracy, and the freedom to participate both individually and collectively in the labor market. Respect for the inherent dignity of every human being requires no less. 
So over the course of my career, I've been privileged to serve both here in the United States and abroad as a civil rights lawyer, a public servant, an academic, and a policy advocate. My work on the legal and policy issues that arise at the juncture of law, religion, and culture has given me a unique perspective on nearly every aspect of the critically important responsibilities that Congress has assigned to DRL. If confirmed as Assistant Secretary, I will use all of this experience, and consistent with the law, will draw upon the experience of the many friends and colleagues with whom I have been privileged to work to advance DRL's ongoing efforts to protect and advance the cause of human rights across the globe. DRL is filled with dedicated public servants who are committed to the cause of human rights. I will work, if confirmed, to work hard to earn not only their support, but yours as well. Senator, I think I'll leave it at there. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today. Mr. Crock. Thank you, Chairman Risch and Chairman uh, Ranking Member Menendez and members of the committee. It's a true privilege to appear before you today. I'm especially grateful to Senator Portman and Young for their overly generous introduction. I'm also honored and humbled that President Trump, at the recommendation of Secretary Pompeo, has nominated me to serve as Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment, affectionately referred to as the E. I would like to thank all seven of the former E's and the incredible State Department team who spent their valuable time with me sharing their insights on this important role. As a global businessman, I can tell you it is a strategic asset to have the finest diplomatic corps in the world in your corner, whether it's here or abroad. I also want to thank my family for being here today. My dear wife, Meta, who's a Georgetown lawyer and serves on their board and our five children, Monica, a marine biologist, Steve, a spacecraft design engineer at NASA, Carter, a Silicon Valley tech entrepreneur, and our seven-year-old twins, JD and Emma, whose courage, kindness, and sense of justice inspires me every day. My story starts like that of many Americans. I grew up in small town Ohio where my father ran a machine shop and my mother was a teacher. My dad's customers were suppliers of the big three car companies in Detroit and his fortunes were tied to theirs. At age 12, I became a welder in his shop and soon learned how to work all the machines. In good times, he employed as many as five workers whom he treated his family. In bad times, I was his only employee and saw him go through the agonizing process of having to lay off his trusted team. His pain was not lost on me. My father dreamed that I would get some college knowledge and return as an engineer to help him grow the machine shop into a big company of 10 employees. While I did become an engineer, I never went back to work with my dad, but I believe he was proud that I joined the biggest company in the world, General Motors, which he had taken to calling Generous Motors after they gave me a full ride to Purdue and to Harvard Business School. 10 years at GM gave me the chance of a lifetime to work at the Cadillac plant, tech center, New York treasurer's office, and pioneer the emerging field of robotics by starting a joint venture that is the largest industrial robotics manufacturer in the world today. That taste of high-tech innovation inspired me to risk it all and move out west to become an entrepreneur. In my eyes, Silicon Valley is the West Point of capitalism a corporate United Nations, a total meritocracy, and a place where failure is recognized as the best teacher. 
My Silicon Valley journey began at RASNA, where we invented mechanical design synthesis that enables engineers around the world, like my rocket scientist son, to optimize designs in real time. I then went on to start another company called Ariba, taking it public as the world's first business-to-business e-commerce company. My ultimate aim was to create a values-based driven company that was built to last. Now, $1.7 trillion in transactions go through the the Ariba network each year, more than Amazon, eBay, and Alibaba combined. My mother taught me that a truly meaningful career is about giving back and paying it forward. So after some initial success, I worked with the biggest global issuer of microloans, and I would take my family along on journeys to some of the most poverty-stricken places in the world to hand out microloans. I will never forget being in the slums of Mumbai after 12-year-old Carter handed an 18-year-old single mother of a crippled child a $50 loan to purchase a sewing machine. And he said, I get it now, Dad. We're not giving them fish. We're teaching them how to fish. My children saw firsthand that economic empowerment and entrepreneurship can truly have a transformative impact on families and communities. That same concept is what makes the E-Mission so meaningful to me. I also had a chance to give back to uh, my alma mater, Purdue, where I had the honor of serving as chairman of the Board of Trustees and recruiting Governor Mitch Daniels to be our president. I'm particularly proud that Mitch is now recognized by the Wall Street Journal as America's most innovative university president. But even more so, that we have frozen tuition for the last seven years, working to address the $1.5 trillion student debt crisis. I eventually went back to building another company called DocuSign. And, and after recently completing 10 years, it's now a public company with more than 400 million users in 188 countries. And as Senator Young pointed out, along the way, we saved 20 billion pieces of paper. This Ohio boy, who began his journey welding parts and later had the good fortune of welding together billion-dollar companies, has had the blessing of a true all-American dream. But even this dreamer could have never imagined that one day he might be presented with an opportunity to give back to this great nation, which has given him so much. If confirmed, it would be the privilege of my life to serve the country and pay it for this next generation of Americans. I fully appreciate the enormity and gravity of this role, especially in a time where the reality we face as a nation is of ever-increasing cyber warfare and seemingly ceaseless variations of intense, perhaps even weaponized economic competition. As you know, our rivals are playing the long game and they're playing for keeps a four-dimensional game of economic, military, diplomatic, and cultural chess with little respect for human rights, intellectual property, international law, transparency, the environment, or sovereignty of nations. In order to prevail, we must play the game better and take economic statecraft to the next level. There is no substitute for American diplomacy. I believe the team with the best people wins and that diversity of thought is the catalyst for genius. With that aim in mind, if confirmed, I will work side by side at all levels with our preeminent diplomatic corps and with each of you 
in a meaningful way benefiting from your experience, your insights, and your wisdom. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly and strategically here and around the world to optimize economic growth, energy security, and the health of our planet for the sake of advancing the interests of our citizens and maximizing our national security. Thank you so very much for your kind attention. Thank you, Mr. Kroc. General Stilwell. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity. I'd also like to thank President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for their confidence and support. Peaceful and mutually beneficial relations with East Asian and Pacific nations have been a U.S. strategic priority for generations. Recognizing this, as well as the region's more competitive environment, this administration has identified maintaining a free and open Indo-Pacific as a top priority. If confirmed, I am committed to realizing a vision for the region that more actively advances long-standing U.S. interests, bolsters the freedom of East Asian and Pacific nations to choose their own path, and brings them together to form a strong and prosperous region. America's vision is built on enduring principles, freedom of the seas and skies, preserving sovereignty, resisting coercion, promoting market-based economics and free, fair, and reciprocal trade, and supporting good governance and respect for human rights. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly to advance these principles. A network of like-minded allies and partners is key. Our strong alliance relationships with Japan, Korea, Australia, and the Philippines continue to flourish, and the recent elections in Thailand are a very positive development. Growing relationships with strategic partners like Vietnam and Singapore will continue to benefit both sides, and the Vice President's trip to the region last fall demonstrated the importance of Pacific Island countries to maintaining a free and open Indo-Pacific. In this effort, New Zealand increasingly contributes across the broader region, while ASEAN remains the core of our regional engagement. If confirmed, I will foster these relationships based on our shared interests and values. On the other hand, critical security challenges remain. The most urgent is North Korea's nuclear and missile programs. Longer term, strategic competition with China re presents co comprehensive generational challenge. We will cooperate with China where it advances our interests, as in North Korea denuclearization, but we must compete vigorously where our interests diverge. As the President's national security strategy makes clear, we are concerned by Beijing's use of covert, corrupt, and coercive means to interfere in the internal affairs of others. China has used various levers to undermine others' sovereignty, whether through the One Belt, One Road project or militarization of the South China Sea. I appreciate this committee's work on ARIA and the BUILD Act to enable regional partners to resist these trends. As well, Beijing must abide by its commitments related to Taiwan in accordance with the three communiques. If confirmed, I commit to working to show China a better way that includes respect for human rights, freedom of religion, and building trust by honoring its commitments, while insisting on reciprocity and true mutual benefit in our bilateral relationship. In the region, there is concern about backsliding on human rights and democracy. For example, the plight of Burma's Rohingya people, Chinese government repression of Muslim minorities in Xinjiang, and the banning of political opposition in Cambodia. If confirmed, I will continue to promote openness, rule of law, and the protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms. Despite these challenges, the region is bright with opportunity with several of the United States' largest export markets and investment destinations and some of the world's fastest growing economies. As Vice President Pence noted in Singapore in November, our trade grows with the region's middle class, topping $1.83 trillion in 2017. This helps U.S. businesses, workers, farmers who can offer valuable goods, services, and American know-how. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, 
This administration is working to ensure that East Asia and the Pacific continues to be a free, open, secure, and prosperous region. If confirmed, I am committed to working with you to ensure this trend continues. And now for the best part, I am joined today by my wife, Jan, uh, flew out here with me from Honolulu, our son, Dane, uh, who's here from uh, Los Angeles, and our daughter, Janae, could not make it. She's in Tokyo studying uh, accounting as an exchange student. We're celebrating our 30th anniversary today, so uh, thanks for making this milestone the most memorable. <laughs> and with that, I look forward to your questions. Thank you, uh, in general. My wife and I have celebrated some anniversaries like that, too. And uh, <laughs> believe me, it will be a memorable experience over the remainder of your marriage. I promise you that. Um, well, we're going to uh, do a, a round of questions, but uh, I promised uh, Senator Isaacson, who has another commitment, that he could have a minute to, to start with. So, uh, Senator Isaacson, I'm going to yield to you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I apologize to the committee in advance. But two things. One is from a past member that all of you know. Saxby Chamley told me on Sunday if I did anything this week, I had to come make sure that I said good things about Mr. Crock. So I want to say good things about Mr. Crock. I'm sure his testimony is going to be as good as his introduction of himself. We're proud to have you and your family here today. The second thing I want to do is bring up an important issue for our country, particularly for aviation, and something that Mr. Crock will have to deal with, and I hope deal with it successfully. But we have open skies agreements with a number of the Middle Eastern country-owned airlines who are subsidized by the sovereign wealth funds and compete with the United States by getting into our marketplace through circuitous routes and then compete for personnel and other things at an advantage to our people, which we cannot compete with. I want to make sure Mr. Crock will, will promise us that he will do everything he can to enforce U.S. agreements with airlines, foreign airlines coming into the country with regard to open skies and be sure we have fair and equitable play for our airlines and aviation industry in America with the open skies agreements. And I hope he will take that position in his position. I congratulate you and you have a beautiful family. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Isaacson. I think uh, I'm not speaking for everyone in the committee, but I think most people in the committee share your uh, view on the Open Skies Agreement and uh, some of the uh, backward way they're going about uh, that, which has been uh, detrimental to, uh, to uh, airline industries in the United States. So thank you very much for your comments. I also got the same call from Saxby. So, uh, uh, well, first of all, I'm, I'm going to uh, be brief uh, and then uh, yield to the ranking member. But uh, the first, uh, I have a question, uh, Senator Stilwell, uh, regarding North Korea, that we, we all agree that it's important we maintain uh, maximum pressure on North Korea, especially after this, uh, uh, after this second summit uh, has indicated that it's not going to go as quickly as a lot of us would like to see, although I think uh, most of us understood we were going to have to have some patience in this regard. Last week, the Treasury designated two Chinese shipping companies for, uh, uh, for attempted evasion of North Korea sanctions. Uh, the next day, the President tweeted saying he had ordered the withdrawal of those additional sanctions, which has created some confusion. And I wonder if you could tell us uh, your understanding of what happened, please, and in your view, what the implications are for uh, sanctions going forward. And I'm sure we're going to explore that more as questions go on. So, General Stilwell. Senator, thank you for that question, for the uh, time we got to spend uh, in your um, office. Uh, the North Korea question, uh, to me, is very optimistic. Things are looking much better than they have over the last 20 years um, since I first involved uh, in 1994, Kunsan, Korea, uh, when we discovered the Yongbyon reactor uh, issue. Um, if you look at the last two years under the pressure campaign, we've seen no nuclear tests, we've seen no missile launches, we've seen no provocations. 
the slow and patient di diplomacy seems to be working, that it, there's going to be ebb and flow with that. Uh, but uh, staying the course and letting the Koreans know that we're not going to, North Koreans know that we're not going to pull back um, just on their word. We've been um, fooled enough times. And so the, the steady uh, pressure uh, will continue to have a, an effect. As for the uh, sanctions, I'm going to defer to Treasury on that one, uh, and, uh, but look forward to working with you on that question. Thank you, General. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, General, to you and your wife, happy anniversary. We'll try to make it as happy as possible in this process. So uh, uh, let me turn to Mr. Destro. Uh, Mr. Destro, do you believe that the annual country reports on human rights are valuable? Do you believe that the annual country reports on human rights are valuable? And would you put your microphone on, please? Yes, Senator, I do. In fact, if you go ahead. I'm sorry. And do you, in your view, do they contribute to advancing fundamental and universal human rights? I think they do, absolutely. So in 2018, uh, while speaking at a panel uh, by the Family Research Council, you said that the United States have these reports and we kind of cram the way we do things here down other people's throats and they're not ready for it. What did you mean by that? Well, Senator, thank you for the question, and it's an important one. I look at the human rights reports as the foundation of much of our foreign policy in human rights. I know they're relied upon, you know, but what I was reacting to uh, is comments that we get that I have had from, uh, from people in other countries. So the, you know, the essence of diplomacy is being engaged in, uh, with everyone from, from good actors to bad actors, and. Uh, and there is frustration out there in some cases. But, so. but certainly the universal, the universal declaration of human rights that the United Nations and virtually most countries in the world have adopted, that promoting that is not, quote, cramming down uh, people's throats. No, no, Senator, it's not. In fact, the human, like I said, the, the human rights reports you know, are, are the foundation of, of much of the work that, that certainly what DRL does, and it's also uh, very foundational to what most of the human rights groups do. So in, I'm very supportive of the reports and actually would like to, you know, take them to the next step. Well, what would that mean? Pardon? What would that mean? Make them, I'd like to see them be more interactive, uh, and uh, I think that what we're looking at now is a, uh, a very, um, a very good, solid report. Uh, one of the things that the wonderful staff at, at DRL has done with me over the past month or so is they've given me access to what the instructions are. And I think Ambassador Kozak did a wonderful job when he explained, you know, what it is that DRL is trying to do with the reports. Uh, but, but there are many other. Uh, pieces of information that are not in the reports that I think DRL could make available uh, to you and to the public uh, working across these agencies uh, in, uh, in the State Department. And uh, that's a conversation I look forward to having if confirmed right. with the staff. In March 2017 at Catholic University's School of Law, you held, uh, there was an event titled uh, Trump's Refugee Order. Uh, getting down to reality in the age of misinformation. You were a panelist at that event, is that correct? Yes, sir. In your remarks, you spoke to the U.S. refugee vetting system and you said, quote, I would venture to say that it's probably unlikely that most of the consular officers really would know how to figure out who an ISIS person is anyway. 
because asking those kinds of questions require levels of sophistication that I have yet to see of the State Department, close quote. Uh, I assume that before you spoke on the panel on refugees, shouldn't you have known that all refugees admitted in the United States are also vetted by the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and other national security agencies? Yes, Senator, I, I know that. And so, uh, so are you suggesting that the State Department employees have insufficient sophistication to perform their critical national security duties? No, Senator, I'm not. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that in the many years that I have been dealing uh, with the State Department, um, and it, it goes back many years now, uh, one of the things that I have learned over time is that the State Department, uh, many of the people in the State Department, I shouldn't say everyone, uh, have had a hard time dealing with the issue of religion. And, and, and that's one of the issues I'd like to bring to their attention. And, and, and this question of who is, uh, who's a terrorist and who isn't requires a lot of sophistication. Well, there's a lot of sophistication at DHS, FBI, and other national security agencies. But since you brought up the question of religion, it, as part of the Republican National Lawyers Association conference in May of 2017, you participated in a panel where you discussed the merits of the president's executive order granting broader religious freedom to individual organizations. And during the discussion, you said the following, quote, what we need the president to do is get these agencies staffed up with people who really understand what religious liberty is all about so that we can get some training done and we don't have to deal with all the holdovers who make our lives miserable when we go deal with these executive agencies. Now, that statement is concerning to me. I can assure you that if you're confirmed, the committee will be watching closely on how you handle personnel issues at DRL. Uh, can you assure me, because we have already had instances of political retribution at the State Department, can you assure me that you will not engage in any of these prohibited practices? Senator, I'm glad you asked me that question. Uh, of course I will assure you of that. I mean, I have been a labor lawyer all of my career. I believe that you address people, uh, you, you address people by, according to their abilities, and, and my job as the leader of the wonderful people I've met at DRL is to actually find out what they want to do in their careers and for me to help them do that. So I, I, I don't have a problem with making that assurance to you, and I'll be happy to report back to you whenever you'd like. Uh, I have another question, Chairman, but I'll wait for the second round. Thanks very much. Uh, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, uh, and General Stilwell, happy anniversary uh, to you. Uh, and uh, I think Senator Risch, Chairman Risch, probably scheduled hearings on his anniversary so he could get out of paying for dinner. I don't know. Is that what you did, uh, Mr. Chairman? <laughs> Anyway, uh, thank you all for your time and testimony today, and welcome to your families and your commitment to public service. Uh, General Stillwell, still, I'm going to spend most of my time with you. Um, do you commit to the full implementation of the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA? Senator, absolutely. Uh, thank you. Uh, your, your testimony is very much in line with what ARIA does. In fact, uh, ARIA is uh, basically the, the, the flesh and bones of your testimony. Um, and and uh, how would you interpret that, uh, your testimony today, and how it fits with ARIA? Senator, I, I see it as a proactive approach to uh, a challenge in the Asia-Pacific that we really haven't had to deal with in the past. And so the legislation is very timely. 
Uh, it uh, counters a state-run and directed uh, attempt to, in many ways, undermine state sovereignty, uh, individual uh, nation sovereignty uh, through uh, what looks like infrastructure funding but does not, whereas ARIA leverages the, uh, the uh, open market, um, you know, uh, private sector funding that develops and, and delivers uh, all sorts of uh, great things in the world of infrastructure, high-quality uh, infrastructure at reasonable prices. Yeah. That well, and I think you may be talking about the Build Act. I want to make sure on the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, though, that, that you are fully committed to the implementation of the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. Yes, sir. Yeah, the, the difference... Oh. Apologies for conflating. No, 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 that's okay. I, I think, you know, the difference between the failed uh, or the Obama pivot and rebalance was a good idea, uh, but the difference between that success uh, and failure is ARIA. ARIA means all the difference between taking the pivot and rebalance and actually turning it into something that does provide U.S. presence and leadership in the region. So thank you for your commitment. And will you uh, agree to appear before this committee uh, as we talk about the in the future uh, to talk about the implementation of ARIA? Yes, Senator, absolutely. Uh, thank you. This is an important generational opportunity for the United States to provide leadership uh, with all of the elements that the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act contains. Yesterday I met with leaders from Vietnam, uh, leaders uh, from, uh, from uh, Thailand as well, uh, and all of them, the first discussion we had was on ARIA and how they can partner with the United States to implement ARIA. If we miss this opportunity, the U.S. will once again have failed on leadership in Asia. We can't afford to fail. ARIA is critical to that success. So thank you, General Stilwell, for your commitment and your leadership. Uh, do you commit to the full enforcement of existing sanctions against the North Korean regime under U.S. law, including those mandated by the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act and ARIA as well? Affirmative, I do. Thank you. Uh, do you agree that no sanctions against North Korea should be lifted? So I believe the, uh, yes, I believe uh, UNSCR uh, approved sanctions should be enforced by all parties. Uh, that, that signed up to that, U.S. and other countries as part of the, now, as far as the bilateral UN, uh, U.S. and North Korea sanctions, um, yes, we should. I believe that. And, and, and I want to clarify the question a little bit, uh, that no sanctions should be lifted until North Korea demonstrates a commitment to complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. Exactly. And so, uh, again, we bought this horse before and appreciate the fact that long-term patient uh, pressure has had the, uh, a very positive effect, as I mentioned earlier. And releasing that pressure too soon uh, will get us right back where we stand. My, my concern, of course, is that we are now slow boiling back to strategic patience, which failed uh, to, to do anything to deter North Korea. Uh, I'm concerned about sanctions that are being imposed under U.S. law, uh, rightfully so, by Treasury, and then waived by the administration for no apparent uh, concrete step toward denuclearization. That's a very big concern. And I think if we're going to relieve maximum pressure, we are going to end up back in the failed strategic patience uh, doctrine. Uh, I would just point out that on March 31st, in just a few days, a report is due from the Department of State. This is a report on a strategy to address the threats posed by and the capabilities of, of North Korea. Uh, this report requires identifying strategies and policies to achieve peaceful denuclearization, to eliminate the threat posed by ballistic missiles, includes uh, an assessment of potential roadmaps toward peaceful denuclearization. This report is due in just a few days. We had a hearing yesterday with uh, Dr. Victor, Ch Victor Cha, uh, Ms. Kelly Magsman, uh, and both of them agreed that we are nowhere near getting this report to Congress as required by law signed on December 31st by the President. So this is going to be a top priority of mine, should you be confirmed under this. Um, so I'd like to, to make sure that we get that. And then also uh, just to, would submit for the record a letter that Senator Markey and I sent 
uh, to Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Mnuchin that talks about the slowdown in sanctions against North Korea. Since March of 2017, uh, there were 182 persons and entities sanctioned uh, by, and I know this is a Treasury call, but you work very closely hand in glove with Treasury, and we need your uh, pressure to make sure maximum pressure is working. But since February of 2023, only 26 new designations have occurred despite ample evidence of illicit behavior from Pyongyang and its enablers. So, Mr. Chairman, would ask uh, unanimous consent that this be submitted for the record. It will be. Uh, thank you. And just finally, uh, the contours of the U.S. approach toward China. I'll follow up on this with a question for the record. Uh, but, you know, do you commit to working with the subcommittee and the full committee on a comprehensive effort to shape a new China policy that is consistent with a national security strategy and the national defense strategy. Yes, Senator, I look forward to it. Thank you. And will you commit to appearing before my subcommittee or the full committee to discuss these efforts in the near future, including to provide uh, constructive feedback on legislative efforts? Affirmative. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, again, happy anniversary. Thank you. Mr. General Stilwell, thank you. Thank you, Mr. <laughs> thank Chairman. You. Thank you, Senator Geiger. Uh, Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to the witnesses for your appointments, uh, nominations for your anniversary. I grew up working in my dad's welding shop, uh, Mr. Crock, so I appreciate that aspect of your story as well. Uh, Professor Destro, thank you for the opportunity to meet in the office, and I have a couple of questions for you, one that you and I talked about yesterday. Um, I asked this question in a confirmation hearing when Governor Brownback was nominated to be Religious Freedom Ambassador, and I was disappointed that I didn't get an unequivocal answer, so I want to ask you it, uh, the same question because it is so directly related to your human rights portfolio should you be confirmed. Some governments use religious justifications to imprison and execute LGBTQ people. Do you believe there's any circumstance under which religious freedom can justify criminalizing, imprisoning, or executing people based on their LGBTQ status? No, Senator, I don't. Professor Destro, you um, engaged in a lot of uh, writing prior to the marriage equality decision of the Supreme Court and my understanding of your position at that time was you did not believe that the 14th Amendment equal protection guarantee extended to uh, guarantee uh, same-sex individuals the right to choose their own partners and marry. There's a f there was a phrase that you used in one of the articles that you wrote in 2012 that I just want to ask you about. And it goes like this. Um, if the structure of heteronormativity is to be dismantled, there is only one place to do it at the ballot box. Um, throughout our history on fundamental issues of human rights, uh, people have not been able to rely purely on the ballot box to do that. Um, slavery didn't end and may not have ended because of the ballot box. Uh, women wouldn't have gotten the right to vote just because of the ballot box. We wouldn't have desegregated schools just because of the ballot box. If you ask oppressed minorities or disenfranchised people to wait for the ballot box, their human rights are often at risk because majorities view them with suspicion or don't want them to have equal treatment. So I was curious about that formulation. You are being nominated for a position. One of the key aspects of the portfolio is the promotion of human rights, and that will often be human rights for people who might be of minority religions, minority ethnicities, minority political views, people who the ballot box doesn't offer them a lot of comfort. One of the great aspects of our liberal democracy is we have a democracy, but we also protect the liberties of minority populations so that they aren't subject to oppression by majority. So I was kind of curious about your suggestion in that article that dismantling heteronormativity 
if, if people were LGBTQ and wanted to marry or wanted to be treated equally in the workplace, they'd have to wait for the ballot box to do it. And I was just wondering if you could walk me through that. Sure, Senator. Thanks for the question. And uh, thanks for taking the time with me yesterday morning to discuss these issues in some depth. The, the question, DRL deals with democracy, human rights, and labor. And so uh, sometimes, the, uh, sometimes the tendency is to prioritize one over the other. And, uh, and people in individual countries have the right to, uh, to, to band together to govern themselves. And so there's, uh, there's a constant uh, tension between kind of the question of, of how you prioritize human rights. Uh, and, and as we know from, from our experience here in the United States, that, that once uh, the courts take a good, solid stand, then the people follow. So, the, uh, so it seems to me that we have to, uh, we have to give a good example of, of what we're doing, and we have to show, we not only have to, to be fair, we have to act fair. And, and I certainly intend to bring that point of view not only uh, to address Senator Menendez's concerns about the people within DRL. I mean, I, I intend that we're all going to be walking the walk there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and basically, that's what we'll be doing across the world as well. And can you, can you tell me that you will be an advocate for the right of LGBTQ people to be treated as equals? Absolutely. Using the U.S. as an example of a country that has moved toward that and that should be one that we would want to impress the virtues of the example on others? Well, you know, Senator Brunei just took a slide down that road uh, just the other day. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and of course, we have to, we cannot tolerate lack of equal protection. That's why in my opening comments, I underscored the word protection. That's an active, that's an active verb to protect, and, and I think we have an obligation to help people do that. One more question quickly. The, in, within the State Department in your, the division, uh, there were instructions given to embassies and others out in the field to provide information about the status of women's access to reproductive health care in countries as part of the annual human rights report, and that was the case from 2011, I believe, to 2017. The instructions that are now being given to the field do not ask them to in, uh, put in information about reproductive rights. You have the ability to change that should, be, should you be confirmed. Uh, would you instruct folks in the field to provide you information so that the human rights report would include information about the capacity of women around the world to access reproductive health care? Senator, my understanding is that the, the Secretary's instructions are to follow the statutes. The statutes uh, require that we look at questions of access to health care, access to... I could just I don't think you're quite answering my question. Instructions for a number of years were in, did instruct to ask, uh, put in information about uh, women's access to reproductive health care. Those instructions have now been changed to de-emphasize that. Uh, if you are confirmed, would you and you would have the ability to do this, uh, would you ask for that information to be reported on to you from our FSOs in the field so that you can include it in the Human Rights Report? Like I said, Senator, uh, not being involved in the discussion beforehand, the, I've seen the instructions. They're trying to keep them uniform. Uh, I, will, I will do what I can within the statutes, but that's all I can commit to at this point. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator Cardin is next. I know he's got some questions, so we'll be at ease for a minute while we try to uh, get Senator Cardin in here. Pardon? 
It's not your well, problem. there's a debate uh, <laughs> regarding that, uh, Senator King. Mr. Chairman, while we're waiting for Senator Cardin, since we'd be going to a second round after Senator Cardin, uh, in, in the interest of time, Senator Cardin has arrived. So. I was going to deny that request, Senator Menendez, just so you know. No, no offense, but I want to make sure it's Senator Cardin. If I can, Mr. Chairman, uh, to my distinguished colleague, uh, we had a bat on our side in terms of the ordering, so we apologize. <laughs> First, let me uh, thank all of our nominees for their willingness to serve our country. These are challenging times. I also want to thank your families for your willingness to serve. Uh, these are challenging times for our country, and we thank you for your willingness to serve in, in these public positions. General Stilwell, uh, happy anniversary. We've all been wishing you that. Uh, we hope that you celebrate many more. And we hope that this service to your country will only encourage that uh, relationship. Uh, my main concern for this round of questioning is to deal with human rights issues. East Asian Pacific region is one that is very much of concern about what is happening on good governance and human rights. And I just really want to encourage you uh, to make sure that these issues are front and center in the State Department. Because sometimes they get lost. There's so many other issues. We're dealing with nuclear proliferation. We're dealing with security issues, dealing with trade issues. But human rights are the strength of this country. And it's critical that these issues be included in all of these discussions. And you hold a key position on this. So you mentioned China and Burma. Uh, you mentioned Cambodia. You could have mentioned also the Philippines uh, having real challenges. Uh, and I hope that you will make America's values a principal part of your responsibility in overseeing our missions in East Asia and Pacific. Uh, Mr. Crouch, I, I must tell you, I've listened to many uh, statements before our committee, and yours was one of the most impressive I've heard about your history. Certainly on entrepreneurship, uh, you bring uh, incredible uh, talent to this position. Uh, it just shows that learning welding skills can do you well in life. So uh, I might go back and try to figure out how to become a welder. So, but but, but uh, congratulations on your success. But understand that your portfolio includes energy and environment also. And I think we all are going to be uh, anxious to understand your commitment to U.S. leadership in dealing with the global issues, particularly on the environment. And uh, if we don't have time to ask today, we will get to, to those questions and uh, Senator Menendez raised that in his opening statement. But, but to uh, Mr. Destro, I want to concentrate a little bit on, on your role because you have a principal role in human rights, in good governance, in anti-corruption, the values of this country. And uh, as I pointed out to General Stilwell, uh, a lot of times it's difficult to get these issues front and center in this country because there's so many other issues that uh, our missions depend on and work on that they don't want to be bothered by human rights, but human rights is our strength. Good governance is our strength. So I want to just follow up on some of the comments that you made. I didn't quite understand what you meant about the State Department having a hard time dealing with religion. What did you mean by that in the response? Thank you, Senator. The, uh, thanks for that question. The, uh, the Frank Wolf Religious Freedom Act requires that people, uh, that foreign service officers be trained uh, when they go out into the field. And, and I've made the comment that not only do the foreign service officers need to be trained, but so do the lawyers at the State Department and at USAID. And, and the, the experience that I've had, especially, uh, it really came to uh, 
really came kind of full force to me when we were working on, uh, on the uh, interfaith initiative in the Holy Land, where we were trying to bring the, the groups together. And, and I have to tell you, Senator, I still have scars from, from, from people kind of, you but know. Do you believe that a practicing Muslim or a practicing Jew or a practicing Christian raises particular concerns? No, sir, I, I, quite the opposite. I think that, that we need to bring people together, and I've devoted most of my career for at least the last 16 years to doing just that. So one of our concerns is that faith can be used as justification for discrimination, certainly against the LGBT community. We all have our religious beliefs, and I respect that. But are you committed to making sure that all people globally are protected against persecutions, whether it's under the guise of faith or under the guise that we shouldn't be interfering in the domestic relations of other countries? Absolutely, Senator. Can you be a little bit more definitive? I'm, are, you, are, are you prepared? Are you prepared? Look, sure. I, I'm a, I've been on the Helsinki Commission for a long time, and we, we have specific provisions under the Helsinki Final Act where we can question activities in other countries. But we always get the, 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 the rebuttal. Why are you interfering in the domestic relations of another country? And Senator Menendez says these are basic human rights tenets that the global community has aspired to. Are you prepared to take on this battle uh, with other countries to say, look, uh, even though it may differ from my own personal religious beliefs, you're going to stand up to protect the rights of the LGBT community. You're going to pr protect the rights against government laws and policies that persecute people because of who they are? Absolutely, Senator. It's a, it's a pervasive problem all over the place. I've spent probably the last 12 years working, working on uh, getting prisoners out of jail. And, and I, you know, thankfully, with, with the help of a lot of other people, that's getting in the face of other governments, and I would not hesitate to do that for one minute. And, and, and this, this, the point I've been trying to make all along is that equal protection means protection. Every, every member of a community is entitled to the equal protection of the laws. And, so, uh, just one last question. So if a country has a law that's that uh, would imprison someone because of being part of the LGBT community, would that be a priority for you to fight to have that law repealed? Yes, Senator, as much as a priority of, of a country that would imprison a woman for not you know, being along with her minder or who would imprison a Christian or a Buddhist or whomever, equal protection means exactly that. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to each of you for being willing to consider being nominated to these positions that are very critical to the country at a very important time in the world. Um, Mr. Destro, I'm, I'm going to follow up with some questions, and if you've responded to these, I apologize for asking them again. But if confirmed, you would be responsible for overseeing global U.S. policies for women's reproductive rights. Congress appropriated $607.5 million in fiscal year 2019 for family planning and reproductive health programs that expand access to family planning services and activities for women and girls. So if confirmed, will you implement these programs and follow congressional will in spending appropriated dollars on family planning and reproductive health? Senator... Yes, I mean, I, I will follow the government's policy. Secretary Pompeo made a very eloquent statement yesterday or the day before 
uh, about the Mexico City policy. You know, I'm bound by what the what the secretary and the administration uh, does. But you know, the United States government is a leader in in advocacy for women around the world. The Human Rights Reports do report on violence against women. They do re uh, yes, on I, coercion I'm, and all of that. So. I, I don't I don't want to interrupt, but unfortunately the United States has not been a leader on family planning and giving women around the world access to those services. Um, and in fact, what we have seen from um, some agencies over the last couple of years is a reluctance to spend the dollars that Congress has directly appropriated and directed them to spend. So it's not, it's not a surprising question. Um, do you believe in the freedom of speech, and will you commit to advocating for this right in countries that impose restrictions on speech? Absolutely, Senator, I will. I mean, I've been working on freedom of speech issues for my whole career. Which I appreciate, thank you for that. And given that answer, I would be interested in your personal take on Secretary Pompeo's announcement to expand the global gag rule even further to invoke the Cylinder Amendment for the first time, which as you may know, would effectively restrain the operations of NGOs and other groups that have nothing to do with abortion services. Instead, it goes after groups that express their views on choice. Do you think it's appropriate for the United States to restrain the speech of pro-choice organizations in this way? And how can you effectively advocate for free speech if you take that position? Senator, I, I, I must question the, the premise of your question. I mean, I don't think the United States government is inhibiting freedom of speech at all. I do believe that, that the Secretary spoke about this uh, the other day, yesterday, and, uh, and, and I will abide by his will on this issue. Well, again, just to reiterate, the Cylinder Amendment would effectively restrain the operations of NGOs um, and other groups that have nothing to do with abortion services. And what um, Secretary Pompeo said, as I understand, was that he was planning to expand the global gag rule to include the Cylinder Amendment, which would restrain the ability of other organizations that are not providing reproductive abortion services, but that may advocate on that behalf, that it would restrain our ability, any funding from the United States to go to those organizations based on taking that advocacy position. So I would hope that you would go back to the Department of State and that you would, if confirmed, get a clarification on what this actually means because um, I think it is in violation of our commitment to free speech around the world. Senator, you certainly have my commitment to go back and to talk to people about how that's understood. Um, also, I was disappointed to see that the administration does not consider reproductive rights to be worthy of inclusion on the congressionally mandated country reports on human rights practice, practices. And it is also significantly scaled back reports on gender-based violence. So if confirmed, you would oversee these reports. Do you consider gender-based violence to be a human rights violation? I do, Senator. And so will you commit to reporting on the prevalence of gender-based violence in these country reports? Senator, again, I'm not, 
I haven't been involved in the, in the discussions about how the reports are put together. I have seen the instructions. I do know that there, is a, uh, there has been a movement lately to try and keep the reports more compact, but my, point, my um, uh, comment to Senator Menendez a little earlier about adding on top of the reports to the extent that we can do that, I'd like to see us uh, report on uh, a little bit more about current events. Well, I would certainly hope that reporting on gender-based violence would be done rather than an attempt to keep, keep the report compact. It would be a recognition of a real effort to report on human rights violations that are happening across the world. That that, as I understand, is the goal of this reporting. It's not to keep it short so that it's an easy read for people. That's true, Senator. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. President. Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. I would, I would concur with the Senator's <laughs> analysis of the reason that we do these reports. Um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Cratch, uh, the House just passed a uh, bill called the European Energy Security and Diversification Act uh, by a big bipartisan majority, 391 to 24. This is a piece of legislation originally introduced here in the Senate by myself and uh, Senator Cardin and Senator Johnson, Senator Rubio, Senator Gardner, um, a bunch of us on both sides of the aisle think it's really important to set up a financing vehicle that we could partner with diplomatic efforts in order to help countries, especially those on the Russian periphery, become energy independent of Russia. Uh, a way at no cost to the American taxpayer to find some ways to uh, try to push back on one of the prime means of Russian leverage, which is their, um, uh, which is their energy that continues to flow largely unimpeded uh, into countries that then become reliant uh, on not only Russia's energy source, but, um, uh, but becomes very intertwined uh, with their foreign policy objectives and priorities as well. Um, can you talk about um, the importance of the United States uh, standing up new capacities to uh, try to help countries around the Russian periphery become energy independent of Russia? And I'd love to get your commitment to work with us uh, on both sides of the aisle on this legislation. Yes, Senator, and uh, th thank you for uh, that piece of legislation, all of Congress, because I really believe that energy security is such a vital component uh, to national security, and a key to energy security is obviously to diversify uh, uh, all sources of energy. So, uh, Senator, you have my commitment. If confirmed, I will do everything possible to utilize our foreign service experts and uh, bring all forces to bear. And I assume you believe that the United States can do more to try to promote energy independence uh, in and around um, uh, Russia's periphery? Absolutely, Senator, and my, my goal is to improve. Um, uh, Mr. Destro, you, you have a difficult job uh, ahead of you. I'm sure Senator Menendez and others have framed uh, this for you, uh, this administration's uh, constant embrace of brutal, oppressive regimes all around the world uh, has set back uh, the international human rights caused by decades, in my uh, opinion. Um, but this position, um, when I think 
um, done right is one uh, that makes the argument uh, that despite all of the competing priorities we have in bilateral relationships, when our president and our secretary of state is sitting across from another world leader, that they um, should raise and must raise issues of human rights, um, no matter the competing equities. There are always competing equities, and this job has been placed in the State Department in order to make sure that the human rights and democracy promotion equities uh, are part of that equation. The president's first trip when he became uh, the commander-in-chief was to Saudi Arabia, uh, a, a um, country that occupies uh, a position of primacy with respect to those brutal and oppressive regimes around the world. We have always known of it uh, and its practices, but we know a little bit more now, uh, given the fact that they targeted uh, an American resident for murder and have another uh, today that they have reportedly electrocuted. Um, can you share with us um, what advice you're going to give this administration with respect to how we right-size our relationship with Saudi Arabia? Thus far, there have been absolutely no consequences uh, to the government of Saudi Arabia um, from this uh, administration. And I imagine if there was someone strongly advocating for uh, human rights and democracy promotion as a cornerstone of our foreign policy in the State Department, uh, we might have had a different outcome in this administration's policy. Give us your recommendations uh, that you will make or, or, or how you view um, the need to raise these issues uh, with a Saudi regime that seems to be targeting uh, U.S. residents for repression. Senator, thank you. That's a... Uh... <laughs> The, the behavior of the Saudi regime uh, with respect to women and other minorities, religious minorities, leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, I will certainly be a strong advocate. Uh, my, my job, as, as, uh, uh, if confirmed as Assistant Secretary, is to do the homework for the Secretary and the President on, uh, on these human rights issues. Uh, I do know that the President has been foursquare, and so has, so has Secretary Pompeo, with respect to holding the, uh, the people responsible for the murder of Khashoggi and others uh, to, to account. There have been, there have been sanctions uh, issued against uh, people in the Saudi regime, and I understand that, uh, that, that the process of looking at the evidence is still ongoing. Not having my security clearance uh, and unless, unless I lessen until I'm confirmed you know, I, I can't comment on, on where they are on that process at this point. Well, we'll look forward to having you back here. Uh, I think uh, everyone, with the exception of the president, who has taken a look at the evidence available to us, has come to the conclusion that we have not sanctioned uh, and targeted the people who were responsible for uh, this killing, thus the need to have somebody in your position who is speaking truth to power on who is actually responsible for these crimes and who actually needs to be held accountable. But thank you very much for your uh, thank participation you, today. Thank you, Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Risch, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, and um, thank you to the panel for your uh, willingness to step forward and serve and represent our nation uh, in important places around the world. Mr. Kroc, if I might first um, to you. In your testimony, you mentioned the importance of leveraging uh, the innovation and resources of our private sector. Um, if confirmed as Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and Environment, um, you'll need to advise Secretary Pompeo on his role as the chairman of the new International Development Finance Corporation, uh, created by the passage of the BUILD Act last year, which could deploy up to $60 billion a year of American private capital in the developing world 
um, in a way that would allow us to compete uh, with peer competitors like China and others who are much more active now in financing um, projects in the developing world than we are. Um, what sorts of recommendations might you make to the Secretary about the use of this new tool, about the role of the IDFC, um, to make sure that, it, that it's not just a, you know, appealing thing to talk about, but it actually has impact on the ground, makes a difference in the developing world, and re-engages, particularly in the continent of Africa, but in other places where uh, we frankly have been sadly absent in recent years as China has significantly stepped up its investments. Th thank you, Senator. A and I, I think that is a strategic asset uh, for, uh, our for our foreign policy. I would make uh, uh, a recommendation that really has three prongs to the strategy, uh, Senator. The first one is, in terms of deploying those funds, to focus those on strategic uh, countries where we can make the most difference. The second would be um, to leverage the innovation and resources of the private sector. And when I mean private sector, I mean not just the business sector, but also the educational sector and the social sector as well. Uh, the third one would be to amplify American values. And, um, and there I would, uh, you know, question is how do you make American values come alive? Mm -hmm. I would start off with um, uh, focusing on um, the power of entrepreneurship, economic empowerment of women, and also education. Thank and you. if confirmed, I will do everything I can. I, I couldn't agree with you more that um, this is a tool that allows both the deployment of capital and the financing of projects in a process that teaches about our values. More transparency, uh, more connectivity to the development, legitimate development goals of our partner countries, and in ways that should help advance human rights, democracy, governance improvements. General, if I might, um, Happy anniversary to you and your wife. Um, thank you for what I suspect has been a long career of service that has not often allowed you uh, to be together on your anniversary. Um, China today is attempting to rewrite the rules uh, of international trade and is flexing its muscles broadly, economically, politically, militarily, um, as they continue to rise and as their economy and uh, country continues to become more significant. Um, and I, I am gravely concerned about um, their actions in ways that may redefine the international order uh, for generations to come. While there are certainly areas where we are competing and must compete with China, there are areas where we may well end up in some confrontation with China. I'm interested in your advice about specific areas where we could cooperate and where expanded cooperation with China uh, may balance out um, the voices that say we are inevitably on a path towards confrontation. Um, what are areas of cooperation you'll be exploring with China um, in the years to come, should you be confirmed? Senator, thank you for that question. That's really a good point. <clears throat> Oftentimes we use the word China and we blanket the entire, not just the government, but the people and all that. And I really, uh, you know, if confirmed, will uh, caution people on that and maybe be more specific in our language in what are the objectionable uh, actors and activities and uh, rather than splashing. Because the, uh, Xi Jinping is using our uh, our language to fan nationalist flames and say that the world in the U.S. is, is uh, holding China, is, is, you know, trying to keep all Chinese people down, and that's not the point. So as far as cooperation, um, while I was there, I had some good uh, interaction with uh, Chinese veterans uh, associations uh, from World War II. Um, 
Mr. Destro's family member uh, spoke about Joe Stilwell in World War II mm -hmm. and the interaction there. I had the opportunity while I was there to uh, meet some 95-year-old folks who fought alongside Americans. And so I've already, uh, uh, we put up a display in the Pentagon of positive cooperation between the U.S. and China, not necessarily the, the communists or the nationalists, and that seemed to uh, resonate. So one area, and, and this is only because of my, ex my past experience, is to look at uh, you know, developing a positive interaction, not with the PLA, but with uh, veterans, especially from our uh, cooperative period in the, as allies in World War II. Um, thank you. I've got one more question for Mr. Destro, but if I, if I might suggest, General, I, I think there are ways in uh, counterterrorism, in uh, nonproliferation, uh, in uh, combating human trafficking and combating wildlife trafficking. There's, there's a range of areas. Uh, peacekeeping. You know, I met my first uh, Chinese flag rank officer um, in visiting a UN peacekeeping force uh, in South Sudan. So uh, I do think there's areas of potential cooperation, and I do think our narrative of the U.S.-China relationship needs to include that. And I'm encouraged to hear about your work with Chinese veterans. That, that was an aspect of it that had not uh, occurred to me. Uh, Mr. Destro, last, if I might, um, in your testimony, you noted that, uh, and I quote, respect for the rights and freedoms of others is the foundation of effective diplomacy and a stable foreign policy. Um, as the co-chair of the Senate Human Rights Caucus, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and if confirmed, I'll be looking to ensure that you stay true to that belief, even uh, when difficult or uncomfortable. Um, I know my colleagues uh, have questioned you at length about um, your positions and some public statements on LGBT rights um, and on other issues, and um, I join them in concern about making sure that we um, step forward and continue to be a voice for human rights broadly understood. But I want to focus on one last thing, if I might. Um, Secretary Pompeo recently said China's in a league of its own when it comes to human rights violations. I think he was referring to the Uyghur Muslims uh, in the, the westernmost province of Xinjiang. Um, how would you engage the international community on this issue um, if confirmed to the position for which you've been nominated? Well, Senator, that, that is, it, dealing with China and the human rights issues in China, particularly in Xinjiang, is going to take every ounce of creativity that we have. Uh, the, uh, the Chinese have effectively shut down the NGOs that DRL certainly has, has worked with. Uh, it's become fashionable in many countries to uh, to shut down the NGO um, the NGO sector as effectively being spies. So we're going to have to we're going to have to find, as uh, General Stilwell has just pointed out, ways in which we can cooperate and get that human rights message to the right people. Uh, unfortunately, in the case of China, uh, the the right person. Is the, is the party chairman, and we're going to have to figure out how to get that message to him. Well, one of the challenges you'll face, and I, I know uh, and admire the work of several of your predecessors, uh, now Congressman Malinowski, uh, Yale Law Professor Harold Coe, um, under whom I studied at school, um, the work uh, of the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor is to be a strong and persistent, effective, and engaged voice uh, for human rights, not as one among many interests, but as a principal interest of the United States. There's always security interests uh, at the table. Uh, I think we need to work together to make sure that human rights interests, promoting a free press, promoting a free and open internet, um, promoting respect for LGBT rights, promoting respect uh, for religious liberty. You have a very broad portfolio, uh, and one I look forward to working with you closely on to make sure we continue to advocate for human rights uh, in all the ways it has helped advance American interests in the past. Um, thank you all. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your forbearance. Thank you, Thanks, Senator Coon. Senator Menendez for a second round. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Destro, let me return to you. Uh, 
you can hear from my colleagues that we all have concerns. And uh, do you recognize the constitutional right to marriage for LGBT Americans, including Department of State employees? Yes, the non-discrimination. Let me finish my question. And the non-discrimination non-discrimination rights of LGBT citizens in other countries. I do, Senator. So here's our problem. You've talked very often in response to questions about your decades of working for certain things. How do you reconcile your prior statements and long-held views on LGBT rights and women's rights with the responsibilities of the position you are seeking today? How are we to assume that you are ready and willing to fight for some of the very rights you have fought against for decades? Well, Senator, thanks for the question. Um, let me take you back to 1987 when uh, a good friend, the first person I ever knew who died of AIDS, I went to see him in the hospital. I saw how he was treated. And as a result of that treatment, I brought to the United States Civil Rights Commission, of which I was a member at the time, the issue of healthcare discrimination against people with HIV. That was not a popular position to take at the time. And you know, throughout my career, I have tried to, to deal with everybody I've dealt with uh, you know, equally and to encourage the, the development, their development as students, their development as employees. And but to be honest, truly, Senator, that's, truly, that's you, what I'll do. You must understand the hesitancy of some of us who believe this may be a, um, a nomination conversion because your statements are totally in contrast to the very mission that you are called upon if confirmed to lead. So I, I, I'm not sure that, that I, you know, I, maybe after the hearing, I, I'd love to have an, a conversation because I, I, I just don't see it. So I, I'd like you to convince me uh, because uh, your, the history does not match up with what I hear here today. Well, Senator, uh, again, I, I'd be more than willing to, to sit down with you and talk, but I think that if you actually talk to the people who I've worked with, for whom I've advocated, you'll find that, uh, that all of them, or at least, at least most of them, would say that the charge that I'm anti-LGBT is laughable. Uh, General, uh, let me ask you, this year we celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Taiwan Relations Act. Um, U.S. support for Taiwan's flourishing democracy, for its ability to maintain the cross-strait uh, status quo, uh, for its ability to have a space for autonomy, are all important uh, to have been important to us in our relationship with Taiwan. What's your assessment of the current cross-strait situation? The pressure Beijing seems to be bringing uh, on Taipei. Uh, seems to be doing it to various countries in the world, trying to disassociate themselves with Taiwan. Well, what do you believe we need to do in this regard? Senator, thank you for that question. Um, it's obvious that the Beijing is trying to um, conclude their reunification uh, in a way that's contrary to the, the agreements we made between 1972 and 79, primarily the three communiques and then subsequent. Um, I'm not sure why the rush. I'm not sure why um, the leadership believes that now is the time to do this. The, the relationship across straits was actually fairly positive in terms of trade and other things. Um, so I, I can't understand why they're doing it, but I do believe that it's our role and our, our um, responsibility to communicate very clearly to them that it's uh, um, not acceptable. Uh, we're gonna ask them to live up to their commitments. Um, 
and uh, and re reinforce our position as to the peaceful um, settlement of this dis this dispute through dialogue and not through force or coercion. Well, there is a strong bipartisan support here for the U.S.-Taiwan relationship based upon uh, the. Uh, the Taiwan Relations Act, and I, I hope you will be an advocate of that in your role if confirmed. Absolutely. Uh, the administration has announced with some fanfare a new Indo-Pacific strategy. I have to admit, listening to different administration officials, uh, uh, I'm not sure uh, exactly uh, what it is and how it's been resourced. So could you explain, as you understand it, uh, that strategy, and where do you think additional resources are needed to warrant it? Thank you, Senator, for that uh, question. Um, I guess I'll start off with uh, my current boss makes a great point that most great strategies are backed into. You, you know what your objective is, and you state very clearly what it is you're trying to accomplish. And then as uh, over time and you know, given time, you work out the ways and the means and how you're going to get that done. Um, we've talked a lot about investment economics. We've talked about the ARIA, uh, the BUILD Act, and those things all seem to... Uh, with the help of the Congress, uh, this is one of those areas where I believe that uh, there is no dispute. This is an area where the, the administration, the Congress can work together and has worked together very, uh, very uh, well over time. Um, if I can just focus on one thing uh, on the strategy, we need to focus on the, the idea of governance. Um, if you look at what the, is coming out of Beijing in the last uh, eight years, uh, you know, a couple of books called The Governance of China, Rules One and two, or Volumes One and Two. Uh, they're trying to push that governance model out, this authoritarian governance model, and, 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 and I guess in an effort to develop like-minded allies, having little success, which is good, but I think our job is to focus on something that we take for granted. We've taken for granted since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 and, and focus on the importance of democracies. We, you know, Francis Fukuyama said the end of history, you know, democracy uh, won. We've kind of become complacent, and that's uh, one thing, if confirmed, I would like to focus on is what, why democracy is important, why free open markets are important, and why top-down directed authoritarian rule just doesn't work. I appreciate that. Lastly, Mr. Crack, uh, let me ask you, 2019 is a significant year for the U.S. participation in the Paris Agreement because November 4th is the day when President Trump can officially initiate the formal withdrawal process. And November 4th happens to be seven days before the start of COP25 on Santiago, Chile, which by all indications, what was, was intended to be pursued at COP25 is very beneficial to the United States and to its industries. Do you believe that the United States should withdraw from the Paris Agreement? Well, uh, Senator, let me uh, put it this way. I think the, the climate issue is, is a very serious issue. I think we all want to leave uh, and preserve the health of our planet for our, our children and our grandchildren. Uh, President Trump has made the decision uh, to withdraw. Um, I do believe that the health of the planet uh, is critical for economic security and also national security. And I believe uh, innovating in the clean tech area uh, holds a key. And if confirmed, um, I will leverage my background um, in the area of innovation and high tech uh, to make sure that we uh, mitigate greenhouse gases while protecting our national security. 
Well, uh, you know, when the president announced, uh, he said possibly we could stay in the uh, uh, Paris Agreement if a better deal could be reached. I haven't seen efforts to achieve that, but if a de better deal could be reached. Uh, uh, Senator Collins and I wrote Secretary Pompeo a letter several weeks ago for which we haven't received a response yet, requesting that the secretary explain how we intend as a nation to maintain our power and influence in a process that we're walking away from. How do you think that that can be achieved? Uh, Senator, I, I think um, to focus on results. Um, uh, for example, um, since 2005, our, our GDP has grown 19%. Our greenhouse uh, uh, admissions has gone down uh, 14%. So I'm, I'm, I'm a businessman. Um, I think it's, it's to clearly focus uh, on results. And as I mentioned in, in my opening statement, um, I really uh, want to focus on uh, optimizing en ener energy security, economic growth, and the health of the planet. Um, and I really believe that innovation holds such a great key there. So if confirmed, I know this is a passionate issue for you, Senator. Uh, I, I would love to constructively engage uh, and continue this dialogue. Well, I appreciate that. And, and let me just say, uh, it's difficult to understand how we leverage U.S. interests. Uh, for example, in the, in the COP25 or uh, uh, COP24 uh, hearings that are going to take place in, uh, in, in Chile, the reality is business, not me, business as widely regarded as successful and favorable towards U.S. interests, but you have to be there to be able to make the case. You have to be there in international organizations to lead the way. When we have, as a nation, participated, we largely get to set the standards. And when we set the standards, we get to uh, pr promote American interests at the end of the day. I hope that particularly in your unique role uh, that has three significant buckets to it, uh, that you'll be an advocate of that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the time. Thank you. Uh, thanks to all of our nominees and your families. Uh, uh, again, we appreciate uh, your willingness to stand up and uh, uh, do this work for your country. It, uh, it will be greatly appreciated. For the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. With that, the committee is adjourned.